Good morning. I'm going to move this on this side or I'm going to spill. Let's turn to Psalm, Psalm 1, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come to you today, come to you today in worship. Lord, we pray that your, your word would not return void, Lord, that you would get me out of the way. People wouldn't hear me stumble on words or stutter or anything like that, but they would hear you today, Lord. So we pray that you would be here and deliver your word this morning. Lord, you're a good God, and we love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why is the first psalm the first psalm? the gateway into this inspired collection of ancient music. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Because it is the quintessential psalm. Because it perfectly embodies the spirit of every other psalm. And for that matter, all other wisdom literature that God has provided for us in His Word. I can think of the books like the book of Proverbs, or the book of Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, more than any other style of biblical writing, deals with the practical realities of life, but in a way that is very different from the norms that dominate our culture. Like a laser saw in the hands of a skilled surgeon, wisdom slices right through everything unnecessary and extraneous and brings you quickly and inescapably to the core issues of life. Often doing so with powerful use of image, just like the lyrics of a good song. 
But of course, this is exactly what the psalms are, right? They are sacred songs, the worship music of the Hebrew people, for whom worship and music are central to all of life. In Psalm 1, it's the archetype of all the other songs in this ancient hymnal. It's a psalm so incredibly timely for our culture, for a postmodern culture, for a culture and people whom subjectivity is a religion whose color is not green but gray. This is a song for them and a song for you and a song for all of us. Its melodic line is unmistakable, almost haunting in its simplicity. You, you can't miss it. There are only two kinds of people respectively characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. Let me give that to you again. There are only two kinds of people respectively characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. And the composer's intention, of course, ultimately is to turn you, turn you and bring you to the point of assessment and evaluation in your life. What kind of person am I? Which path describes my way of life? Which eternal destiny is mine? There are only two kinds of people characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. It is the message of these inspired lyrics. So as we look at the lyrics of this worship song, I would like to ask these three questions. Number one, what characterizes the righteous man? What characterizes the righteous person? Secondly, what characterizes the wicked person? What characterizes the wicked person? And thirdly, what is the eternal destiny of each? Are you a righteous person? How can you identify the righteous person? It seems to me that you should really know or want to know how to answer this question because of all things, this is a person who is said to be blessed. This psalm begins where we all hope to end. It speaks of a truly, truly happy person. Not because he earns a six-figure salary. Not because she has a clean bill of health. Not because all the kids are in college and doing well. Not any of these things are bad things, you understand, but they may, inflect, they may in fact reflect the blessing of God. But blessedness is still within your grasp, church, when the MRI reveals a spot on your lung or a pink slip is handed to you at work or you get really bad news about an accident with someone you love. It's the kind of happiness that Jesus himself speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, blessed, blessed, blessed 
over and over again. It's its principal theme. And yet, if you recall, it, it, it happens. It, it's the happiness that includes being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, a happiness despite persecution for the sake of righteousness. So it's not an empty-headed giddiness that we're talking about here. It's not the kind of person that just likes to laugh. It's not that. It's a transcendent, eternal contentment so deeply embedded in the human heart that it can't be touched. Not even by the severest of circumstances. Blessed. It is the internal disposition of the righteous. Are you a righteous person? You say, well, I mean, sometimes, once in a while, I occasionally manage to. But there's no gray here. No middle ground. Only two kinds of people. What characterizes the righteous person? Notice, firstly, right from the outset, the righteous person avoids evil influence. The righteous person avoids evil influence. He's not the postmodern person. Hey man, whatever works for you, he's not that way. He's the separated person with a decided bias against everything evil. Notice verse 1, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The emphasis of this is on a particular way of thinking, a perspective on life. We might say it's an outlook or a mindset. But notice here, how the hymn writer describes this particular perspective. He doesn't label it error or lies or falsehood. He doesn't label it that way. He doesn't say, blessed is the man who walks not in the lies of the wicked. He doesn't say that. He speaks to, speaks to it as what? Counsel. Doesn't that sound good? Because very often, you see, these perspectives can seem intelligent and very well informed, even at first blush. But consider the source. It comes from the wicked. Which means the values they promote will ultimately reflect this distortion. Continuing in verse 1, "...nor stands in the way of sinners." stands in the way of sinners. This here stresses their lifestyle, their behavior, their actions, their practices. And, and not just people you see that are egregiously evil, outrageously evil, like Osama bin Laden or Jeffrey Epstein. Not, not people like that, but rather people who may in fact be quietly pragmatic in their methods. Morally slippery in their lifestyles. Soft and subtle in their defiance of authority. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
This here implies a kind of belonging, a place where one settles down in comfort. In this case, note, with people who are scathing unbelievers. Now, you'll see that the wicked person enjoys... These are the cues that he follows, the counsel, the direction he takes, the way, and the company he enjoys, the seat. But not the happy man. Not the blessed man. He's different. This person is countercultural, as it were. They're not just nice. They're not just easygoing. They're not just tolerant. This person, he avoids evil influence. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He avoids evil influence. Now, you may say, David, come on, how, how, do, I, how do I get past the fact that this sounds a bit inconsistent from what I heard or how I'm supposed to act in this world? In fact, in our life groups, right? We went through the book, the gospel, discipleship, hospitality, and that we, we've been encouraged that we should have relationships with people that aren't Christians. In fact, we've, we should even encourage our children to have friends that aren't Christians. We've been exhorted how to love non-Christians, and we've also been told that we should have non-Christians even in our homes. How does this verse reconcile with the commands of both Jesus and Paul not to disengage from this world? The issue here, my friends, is not that of association. It's that of assimilation. Christianity never detaches itself from culture. Rather, it throws itself in, into culture directly, into the mix of culture, all the while living in an uncompromised devotion to Jesus Christ, which is ultimately subversive to the culture and will in no doubt arouse hostility from culture. You say, David, but... This is a difficult place to live. I mean, withdrawal, frankly. Isolationism is, is much easier. Compromise is, is so very subtle. You know, I mean, if you hang with people who are not Christian, your sensitivity to sinful things will become dull. It certainly can. But the lifestyle of the righteous person, church, is not merely ca characterized by the negative, what he doesn't do. It's, it's here in verse 1 that what he doesn't do, that he avoids evil influence. Secondly now, and much more positive, is what he does do. The righteous person absorbs divine revelation. The righteous person absorbs divine revelation. He soaks it up. My friends, I can, I, I'd like to teach you something very practical this morning for your Christian life. You will never, ever know true blessedness. You will never know real deep-seated happiness if the preoccupation of your life is saying no to the world. 
I know that sounds weird, but it's just not strong enough. It's not compelling enough. Even more essential than saying no to the world is the empowering benefit of saying yes to the Word. What will sustain you as a vibrant Christian in a world that relentlessly pursues and pressures you to conform? If you look at it here, this is incredible. The experience, watch it, amazing. The experience of pleasure. Verse 2, But this blessed man, his delight, his pleasure, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Yes. You need to fear sin, church. No doubt about it. But you need to also understand that fear all by itself will not keep you from sin. You need more than fear. You need fascination. It's not enough for you to be warned. You need to be wooed. And the woo, and what woos the righteous person is the law of the Lord. Used here it means... Instruction that comes from God. You would simply refer to this as divine revelation. And for this righteous man, this person of genuine happiness, it's not a burden, it's not a bother, it's not anything tiresome, rather he absorbs it. In fact, to be more precise, church, look at the text really carefully. Notice that his devotion to the Word of God is cerebral, perpetual, and emotional. Can you see that it's cerebral? The righteous person doesn't just read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. His mind is engaged. Note here that he meditates on it. He contemplates it. He ponders it. He considers its implications. He carefully reflects on how to best apply it. He doesn't stand over the Word of God, deciding for himself what to obey and disregard. He places himself under the authority of Scripture. That's why he's so happy. It's why he knows this state of blessedness. You say, but I never get anything out of the Bible when I read it. Might it be that it's because you've not really engaged your mind? I'm not talking about, friends, becoming a scholar. I'm not talking about uh, learning you know, Greek and Hebrew or, or you know, having a deep desire to do so. That might be your desire, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something here that every single person in this room... And I know the kids in the catechism can do as well. This is an interesting piece. The verb here, meditate, actually means to mutter. In other words, meditation is not a passive, peaceful, quiet, waiting in stillness for some notion to pop into your mind so that you can assume God is talking to you. No. 
This is an audible exercise. It's actual vocalization, reading out loud the Word of God, drilling it over and over again so as to memorize it, review it, regurgitate it, talking to yourself about, about it. I want to teach you something this morning, something very practical for your lives. Read it out loud. Read it out loud. Read the Word out loud. You need to hear it. It's a bit, bit embarrassing me, for me to acknowledge this, but if you were to start, stop by my house, uh, and once in a while I get a chance to preach and I prepare a sermon, and um, if you came by my house, you'd hear me studying, you'd hear me talking all of this out, talking it out by myself, talking out the meaning of a passage. If you were to drive alongside me on the highway as I go to work and I listen to the Word, I'm, I'm sitting there going like this and talking, and luckily we have car phones and things and people don't seem to notice too much. But you know, 20 years ago, they would have had me uh, probably pulled over. But I do this all the time when I study. That's what it means to meditate. And all of you can do the same thing. If you read a chapter a day to keep the devil away, slow down. Read it out loud three times. The first time, just to hear it. The second time, to think carefully about it, what it meant for the people to whom it was written. Because it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. Third time, to consider what kind of application it might have for you. If anybody joins my Sunday morning group, we always have, after a section of Scripture, after a verse of Scripture, we have an application. You have to look at how this applies to you. For the righteous man... His devotion to the Word of God is cerebral. Notice here that it's perpetual also. He meditates day and night. His meditation on it occurs day and night. It doesn't mean that he, he never thinks about anything else or he doesn't work a full-time job. It means that his mind is continually returning to the Word of God. That is, over and against everything else that he reads, the Word of God is central. The Word of God is essential. The Word of God is indispensable. And you understand now, my friends, just, just maybe because his devotion is perpetual it eventually becomes cerebral in that he gets it, it makes sense, he understands it. And maybe then, because his devotion has become cerebral, that it eventually becomes emotional. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. It is his pleasure. Just recently, I watched a movie. I re-watched it. I've seen parts of it before. I watched the whole thing through. Fiddler on the Roof. You guys remember that movie? Remember Tevia? I think he was the main character in the whole thing. 
He was singing probably one of the most famous songs in the movie. If I were a rich man. After listing all the things that he would do and all the things he would buy, he then pauses for a moment. He softens his voice and he says, If I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall and I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day and that would be the sweetest thing of all. Rich or poor? That's this guy here. Right? He gets his kicks from the Word of God. It brings him pleasure. Which is the reason he continually says no to the influence of sin, but he says yes to the Word of God. He's not just fearful, you see. He's fascinated. He's not just warned. He's wooed. What characterizes the righteous man? He avoids evil influence. He absorbs divine revelation. And thirdly, the righteous person achieves intended fulfillment. He achieves intended fulfillment. Look at the end of verse 3. Speaking of this person who delights in the law of the Lord... In all that he does, he prospers. Wait a second. The Bible teaches prosperity? (laughs) Holy cow. Isn't that what the text says here? Look at it. In all that he does, he prospers. In the Bible, prosperity, shalak, has very little to do with with economic abundance or social status. It's it's not about becoming Bill Gates or Elon Musk. It most often means to fulfill the purpose for which a person or thing has been created. To fulfill the purpose for which a person or thing has been created. So for example, the Old Testament actually uses this word in reference to a weapon. But how can a weapon prosper? The Old Testament actually uses this word in reference to a tree. But how can a tree prosper? How can these kind of things prosper? By fulfilling the purpose for which they have been made. God says about his own word, Isaiah 55, he says, It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall prosper in the thing for which I set it. God's word is prosperous, meaning that it will accomplish its intended purpose. Thus, friends, This is the biblical concept of prosperity. The fulfillment of the purpose for which a person or thing has been created. You this morning are the creation of God for the glory of God. And that means 
And this is what it means for you to be prosperous, that you, as a creature bearing his own image, that you would fulfill God's intended purpose for your life. The righteous person does, which is the reason he's happy. And maybe, you see, it's the reason why other people are not. Because they don't. Have you ever asked yourself this? This God, who does everything on purpose, why has He made me? Why has He given me life? Is my existence anything more than an exercise in self-indulgence? Am I really, truly fulfilling the purpose for which He made me? Can you say that this morning without uncertainty? Take note now. The simile used to illustrate this prosperous man by virtue of the fact that he avoids evil influence, verse 1, he absorbs the divine revelation, verse 2, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Okay. But why has this tree been created? Only to provide shade? Protection from the wind? What kind of tree is it? Look at it. What kind of tree is this? It's a fruit-bearing tree, right? Its created purpose is to bear fruit. Is its purpose achieved? Well, look at the clues in the text. Look at it. This tree is planted. It speaks of stability. By rivers of water, this speaks of vitality. Yields or brings forth its fruit, it speaks of productivity. And its leaf does not wither. It speaks of durability. Oh yes, this tree certainly achieves its purpose. But more to the point now, and absolutely indispensable to the prosperity of this tree, is being planted near a source of vitality that will ensure its fruitfulness. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. So don't forget this. This is a simile. Notice the simile is introduced here by the word like. He is like a tree. I can tell you this, that the hymn writer here, he can't really give a rip about trees. He's, he's speaking about, about you. What characterizes the righteous person? He has attached himself to the source that will affect productivity. He is consistently nourished by the Word of God, divine revelation. It is the very thing that will allow him to achieve his purpose for which God created him. Just like this tree, in all that he does, he prospers. It is why he so truly, deeply happy this righteous person are you the righteous person you say 
Well, you know, sometimes I do manage. No. Here is the righteous person. All subjectivity is blown away. He avoids evil influence. He absorbs divine revelation. And he achieves his intended fulfillment. Now, does that describe you? Because there are only two kinds of people in this world, respectively characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. Here is the righteous person. So what characterizes the wicked person? Verse 4. The wicked are not so. It's funny, when you look at this in Hebrew, Hebrew sounds a lot like Yoda. Not so the wicked. That's what it sounds like. I mean, you can hear how emphatic the author is here. But what's not so about the wicked person? Everything that has just been said about the righteous person. So, if you'd like to, friends, you can start here and work your way back to the beginning. The wicked person does not achieve the purpose for which God created him. The wicked person does not absorb divine revelation. The wicked person does not avoid evil influence. Consequently, the wicked person is never truly, generally, lasting, happy. It's not necessarily because their sin so foul. They might be very nice neighbors. Rather, what qualifies them as wicked is the very opposite thing that distinguishes the righteous. No regard for the Word of God. No regard for the Word of God. No real rootedness and preoccupation with divine revelation. So what then defines the substance of their lives? Look at verse 4. Like chaff that the wind drives away. This is what characterized the wicked person. Chaff. You say, well, that doesn't sound that terribly bad. Chaff. But you and I, we're not harvesters of grain. I don't think there's anybody in here that does that. But if you do, you would know that it's the process of taking a pitchfork and you have a uh, a, um, threshing floor and you're scooping up a heap of grain and you're throwing it up into the air and the heavier grain falls to the threshing floor and that's what you keep. And and the wind blows off the the chaff from the grain. It's regarded, the chaff is regarded as refuse, garbage the waste products of the harvesting process. But again, friends, I would remind you, it's a simile. Notice the word like. He is like chaff. The hymn writer is not here concerned with agricultural practice. He's describing the second group of human beings, the wicked, people who find no real pleasure in the Word of God. Their lives, he says, are weightless and worthless. Without substance, they have no value, and that's notwithstanding their gifts, their power, their money, or their beauty. And mom and dad, 
You see, this is the very thing we have to help our children understand when their eyes are wide open with envy over the wicked. Be it a popular musical artist or a world-class athlete or a beautiful model or a famous actor. Look at the clothes she wears. Look at the cars he drives. Look at how many cameras click. Look at the people clamoring to be around them. Look at how many followers they have on social media. What we need to do as parents is we need to help our children establish a standard of measurement that reveals such things for what they really are. Weightless and worthless chaff that the wind blows away not achieving the purpose for which God had made them. In fact, there's some irony here. Have you noticed it? In all of this, we have three qualities that characterize the righteous. Only one characterizes the wicked. It's as though this hymn writer saying, well, How much can you really say about chaff anyway? Don't let our fallen culture beguile you. It's not more, any more complicated than this. There are two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked, and here each are graphically described for your consideration, which leads us with one final question. What is the eternal destiny of each? What is the eternal destiny of each? You see, just because Psalm 1 is a song doesn't mean that this composer is fiddling around. This is no religious game. The last two chapters, or the last two verses in this chapter makes it clear. Note, now, the scene turns to the final judgment. And the destiny of the wicked is made exceedingly plain. Notice, verse 5, they have no justification. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. In God's courtroom, they don't have a leg to stand on. They have no communion, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They are cut off from the community of God's eternal people, and they have no hope. Last part of verse 6. But the way of the wicked will perish. It's an eternal death sentence. The destiny of the righteous, it's equally plain, though profoundly different from the wicked. Why? Notice verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The idea here is that the Lord continually and intimately knows. That He is personally and intimately concerned with every single step the righteous person takes. And if this is so, the God who cares about every step that the righteous person takes, He also will care for him when he steps into judgment. 
And so unlike the wicked, who share no intimacy with God, the righteous person will not perish, but be preserved with eternal life. There are only two kinds of people respectively characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. It's why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. These things are, after all, these are the first things. First things should be first. And you, church, need to face them now. Do you belong to the righteous? Or do you belong to the wicked? You say, David, now, this is the very thing that concerns me I mean, I understand what the text here is saying, but I've not lived up to it. Not perfectly, not consistently. I've not always avoided influence, evil influence. I've not always been as rigorous with the Word of God as I should have been. And I don't know that I can say with any certainty that my life is in fact a a perfect fulfillment of God's intended purpose for me. Nor can I. So this raises a very important question. Who ultimately is the righteous man? Who is the only one to perfectly avoid every influence of evil, though he loved people and repeatedly intersected his life with theirs? Who is the only one to perfectly, perfectly absorb the revelation, uh, the revelation of God cerebrally, perpetually, and emotionally so that every single second of his life was lived in the fulfillment of this revelation? Who is the only one to perfectly fulfill the purpose for which his humanity was created? The Father knew him intimately. Every step that he ever took, including the step that required his condemnation in our place. So that now our justification at the judgment, our communion in the new creation, our hope for eternal life doesn't turn on our perfections, but on his. Jesus Christ is the righteous man. And he has become our righteousness. It's why this this psalm, Psalm 1, so clearly speaks of the Christian. It's, It's why the Christian so delights in the Word of God. It's why the Christian meditates on it routinely. Not because salvation is found in study. If that were the case, then the Great Commission would be to make academics, not disciples. It would mean that uh, seminarians would be the godliest of people. And we know that to not be true. Pleasure is found in the law of God because of the one whom the law reveals. I delight in the law of God because it's how I get to God. Because it's how I get God. 
Psalm 1, just like all 150 psalms, this worship book in his, in his wonderful word, brings us to Jesus Christ. And my friends, this is what I need if I'm to avoid the influence of sin. It's not enough for me to fear. You see, I'm not a computer. I'm not a machine just to absorb data. I'm a man, and I need fascination. I need to be wooed. And what woos me, what fascinates me, is not the verbs and the participles and the nouns. What woos me is the one to whom the verbs and the participles and the nouns point. The study of every psalm will take us to a person by virtue of who he is and what he does makes us want to want him more than anything the world could ever offer us. We study the words of God, God-breathed words, because they show us the word. The Bible is witness to Jesus Christ. The written word is the witness to the living word. And amazingly... As another composer of a hymn, an old hymn is said, And the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This is a song today for our culture. A gospel song from God Himself who loves this world so much. He cuts through their subjectivities with a scalpel of reality. There are only two kinds of people respectively characterized by two ways of life and two eternal destinies. The wicked and those who cling to the one righteous man. Those who, because of his righteousness, seek to emulate His righteousness. Which kind of person are you? Which path are you on? Which eternal destiny is yours? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You sent Your Son to be the righteousness that we are not capable of. No matter how hard we try, we can never, in our own efforts, be the righteous man. Lord, You have shown us this morning there are only two kinds of people. Those who have put their faith in Your Son and His righteousness and those who don't. This morning I pray for Christians here, Lord, that we would renew our pleasure in Your Word and cling tightly to that one righteous man, Your Son, Jesus. And for these here this morning that are hearing this for the first time, that their righteousness will never be enough, that if they cling to their own righteousness, Lord, come judgment, they will not have a leg to stand on. They need Your Son this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord, that You will open their ears and their eyes to this truth. Jesus, I ask You 
to save. And Jesus, thank you for doing what we're not able to do. In your blessed name we pray, Jesus. Amen.